This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Business Plan for the Planet podcast, a series centred around ESG insights. In these episodes, you'll hear from experts whose work is at the heart of sustainability-linked trends and opportunities, as well as from businesses that are delivering change for a better future for us all. Join us as we shine a spotlight on their commitment to a sustainable future. Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Mark Jamieson talks to Zoe Knight, HSBC's Global Head of the Centre for Sustainable Finance, and Martin Link, Chief Strategy Officer for Wood PLC. In a wide-ranging conversation, the three discuss how Wood, traditionally a high-carbon technology, has a role to play as the world moves towards a low-carbon economy. A very good day and welcome. My name is Mark Jamieson. I'm the Institution of Civil Engineers, Middle East and Africa Council member. I'm also Vice President of PMK Consult. Today, the podcast that we're presenting is looking at the future and how we will live, but more specifically, enabling the transition to net zero. Why is it important and what do we need to do? I'm very fortunate to be joined today by Zoe Knight from HSBC and Martin Link from Wood PLC. Zoe is the global head of the Center for Sustainable Finance and has over 12 years experience with HSBC, having started her career also in the banking world with JP Morgan, UBS and Merrill, to mention a few. Martin has 11 years and is currently the chief strategy officer for Wood PLC and is central to their transformation from a high carbon energy industry to how that will look in the future and what does low carbon mean for Wood PLC. Both of them bring a wealth of experience, particularly in sustainable finance and how the corporate world is going to adjust and change. And undoubtedly, this is going to be one of the key things that helps trigger the change, because it's all very well as having policies in place that are government-led, but the fundamentals are, without the support of the larger corporate world, we just won't get there in time. So a very warm welcome to you both. Thank you for joining me. Just touching the overall sort of plans of what we want to do, um, we're going to sort of pick on maybe three, three areas that we're going to look at. The role of finance to address climate factors, the need to understand what the energy sector is doing, and in particular, obviously, what that means here in the Middle East. And also, what are we going to be looking at as the next action plan? So how do, how do we take the outcomes from COP26 and the predecessors, and how do we focus those in terms of topics for COP27 and indeed COP28, which will take place in Abu Dhabi in a couple of years' time? 
So I'm going to start with Zoe, please, um, just to talk about finance as an enabler for net zero. Hi, Mark, and thanks for the invitation to join you today. It's, it's great. And you've really hit the nail right on the head, right? What does it really mean for finance to be an enabler of a net zero economy? And really, we're talking about two things. The finance sector is trying to solve for two problems. One, get more capital into the pure play climate solutions that reduce emissions. And that's clearly critically important to limit future temperature rises. But the second thing, which is a much more complicated area to talk about, is we want to create this system that aligns finance today for a future that builds that net zero economy. And that means looking across all different sectors, you know, the industries of today, like the steel and cement sectors that are providing both solutions for how we want to live going forward, like inputs into wind turbines, for example, but equally in producing those goods and services can be energy intensive themselves. And so the financial sector has this kind of dual role at mobilizing as much capital as it can into new investments for those solutions, but equally reconfiguring the existing capital stock embedded in organizations to be able to transform into that future net zero economy state. Martin, as an effective need or user of finance, from your perspective, how important is it to have the sort of the right incentives and indeed the right support to be able to make the changes that a company like yourselves are going through? Yeah, thanks, Mark. And again, I would just say thanks for the opportunity to be with you today and to share some thoughts. I think this is such an important topic and the the role of finance is absolutely critical to what we're trying to do as a company and for the industry. It's really the lifeblood uh, of our um, economy for the for the company. So, yeah, it's, it's really trying to um, understand the role it plays and how to utilize the things that Zoe was talking about to try and encourage um, finance to be used more more wisely. One of the things I realized when we were looking at the energy transition and how we need to pivot towards it is one of our fundamental tenets is to stimulate wise investment. In the past, we were perhaps um, more just looking for technical challenges and you know taking on board uh, bidding opportunities and uh, very much focused on that. And I think one of the things we've really realized in order to play our role in the energy transition, we need to be thinking about the flow of capital much more intentionally and bring our technical knowledge to some of the biggest uh, industrial challenges, things like you know industrial cluster decarbonization. How do we bring the finance to that so that it's spent, spent wisely? You know, We only have a limited amount of capital. And as Zoe was saying, we want to help it to flow in the right direction. So I think there's probably two things to touch on. The firstly is our solutions and services. So we want to partner with organizations who have capital. And uh, often this is like developers or operators. And we want to make sure that they're able to access that finance. And sometimes we can be um, part of the solution uh, for tapping into that finance. Example would be the UKF, you know, the UK export finance um, that we've worked alongside many times. So there's, there's that aspect of working together with our partners to solve these problems, but also for, for ourselves as a big company, you know, we have a lot of working capital that we need. We have uh, our tax and treasury teams trying to ensure we've got liquidity 
And uh, I think it's been a really encouraging uh, move for us to see that our our own kind of access to capital has become more green, more sustainable. We've taken advantage of a, a, a couple of initiatives recently that's tied ourselves to more sustainable KPIs, uh, which I think is a really positive step to um, showing our kind of commitment and also keeping us accountable to some of these uh, commitments that we've made, which I think, as you say, it's really the role of corporations to try and lead the energy transition by by example um, and by providing the right services. We are seeing uh, a significant step change in the way that investors are looking at um, both corporations and indeed what it means to be sustainable in terms of their investments. So that is that is translating into the sort of ESG, the environmental, social, and, and governance side of things, and a step change in terms of how we actually create those, those performance indicators, but also do we deliver against those priorities? And perhaps Martin, you could start with me with just, you know, how important is coalition building it delivering ESG objectives to to any corporation yes it's absolutely vital you know in terms of esg within our own company you know it's something that i would say three years ago you know it was on the periphery as we kind of thought about you know the investor expectations and then i remember it was probably in 2019 actually hosting a meeting with our brokers to do a deep dive into what esg was and what it meant for us then in the space of about Six months, it went from being on the edge to being right in the center. And uh, I'm sure we're not alone in that as a company. And everybody was talking about ESG all of a sudden. And I think one of the encouraging things is that we were doing a lot of this already, but we didn't know it, if I, if I can put it that way. And when you look at environmental social governance, I would say it's just how to run a good business, basically. So we were doing a lot of these things already, doing very good work around not using third parties who were corrupt or using child labor or any of these, you know, we had some really good policies, but they weren't under an ESG lens or umbrella. And so what it's done, I would say, Mark, is really kind of hone in on what makes a, a sustainable company. And I think we're still some way into that journey uh, because from my research into the companies that look at this, there's not 100% clarity on what are the key metrics? So there's a lot of things measured, but what makes the difference between one company and another when it comes to these decisions is sometimes difficult to put their finger on. But I think the encouraging thing is we scored very well because as I said, I think you know we were doing a lot of the right things already. But it's also put into focus our need to transform our portfolio and be much more proactive in working with that kind of partnership approach and coalition. And a lot of that's, to be honest, with our customers. You know, as they transition, you know, we've, we've got a number of strategic frameworks in place and joint ventures. You know, when you think of all, all our different customers, we might have, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 on the go at any one time across our entire business. And obviously, there's a range of perspectives on this topic. North America, Europe, uh, Asia has a very different approach to the energy transition and net zero. And we're trying to make sure we're kind of partnering at the right pace uh, of a lot of these areas. And we're encouraged that things seem to be accelerating. But I think that flexibility to be able to be the the support at at the right time and 
make sure we're gently agitating the, the relationships uh, to encourage our clients to be more sustainable and ultimately more resilient is part of our strategy. But not everyone's in the same place, Mark. And I think that's part of our challenge is, you know, we've got such a broad range of customers it is a challenge to be that kind of partner of choice across the entire spectrum. So yeah, definitely a work in progress. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a, it's a really interesting challenge as a corporate. Where you lead, there are clients that are so far at the other end of the optic. It is a bit like which way you're looking through the pair of binoculars as to, as to how they treat your leadership. But hopefully, yeah, we, we will see more and more governance um, and relationship build with governments that would allow that those sort of clients to realize that the leadership you're showing is indeed the right path for them to follow. Bringing together different partners is, is ultimately fundamental to delivering sustainable futures. As Martin pointed out, what we'd really like to have in some way is a convergence of thinking around which ESG metrics are important for us all to be able to compare on a consistent basis. And so, you know, it's really important for the financial services industry to think about how to do that, of course, in a way that isn't non-competitive with each other, but in a way that makes it more straightforward for the outside world to see what we're doing and to really look at whether or not they, they think that it's, it's, uh, it, it's consistent between players. But one of the things that I would point out as well is that we have seen quite an evolution in this space in the sense that in the early days of ESG thinking, when the principles for responsible investment were launched back in 2006 or so, the emphasis was really at investors looking at corporates and their consideration of topics in an operating sense. Where we've got to now is this in a much more strategic and business-oriented outcome sense. And that's because the ESG agenda is really about tackling end markets. It's about thinking, you know, which are the high-carbon products of today which may or may not have a place in certain countries and in certain futures. If we want to be aligned to a future that is um, limiting temperature rises and we want to be in cities that are livable and clean and healthy and we want to be not on the receiving end of extreme floods and weather events, and, and we want to be able to prosper altogether, actually, you know, that means an, an innovation and shift in some of the products and services that we use today and, and how we allocate capital for them. I think one of the interesting points that investors have really got behind is providing um, or looking at labelled products as a means to have transparency on whether corporates are doing what they say they will, i.e. providing the proof points that their climate strategy and narrative is actually being put into play via financing and new capital and how investors can support that. And this is mission critical, right? Because as I pointed out earlier, it's very straightforward to highlight the solutions and the opportunity set and the pure play, what's going to make the world shift. But it's much harder to compare if an industrial company that is inputting into the supply chain of perhaps a, a power utility or an oil and gas or a shipping or, a, or an industrial, if they're on the journey as well. And so we need these labeled products to, to give the proof points 
that the companies are doing what they say they will. And that might be a pure green labeling, bond or loan, or it might be a sustainability linked. And by sustainability linked, that means selecting a set of metrics like emission reduction and linking that to the terms of the financing. And, and this is pretty innovative, right? Because you know, investors want to see action and progress and financiers want to make sure that their capital is, is aligned in a risk managed, risk reward managed way. So, you know, it's just a different way of thinking in terms of the decision making process, but it's useful to provide that transparency and signal that things are moving forward. Equally, couldn't agree more with that. I think it's fascinating to see how the metrics that we used five years ago are changing so dramatically now. And the emphasis on everything from green building codes to the various measures that one uses in construction are equally applicable across different industry sectors. And and, and what we're seeing is that there's an ability for you know, global leadership to be demonstrated quite clearly. And but as you both have pointed to, being able to have a degree of measurement that is translatable across without impacting competitiveness is undoubtedly what's key. One thing to point out, by the way, Mark, is that now there's some 23 trillion of global investments that are investing on on an ESG basis across the institutional investor community. So it's not as if it's stuck in a corner anymore. It's really moved into the mainstream space. This is no more about early adopters and you know, you know, startups, is it? It it this is this is serious levels of of funding. Martin, how quickly have you as Wood been able to take this transformation and drive it to the top of the agenda? And and how do you see it also changing in terms of the sort of the speed? Because obviously, if we we look at the sort of the 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 messages we receive at the likes of COP26, you know, we are, you know, the time is now is very much the message we get. You know, we we have to do things now. We have infrastructure in place that is still going to be in place in 2050 and we're still going to be relying on it so we've got two elements we've got an element of resilience we have to deal with but we've also got to deal with kind of those decisions we're making now are what are going to shape 2050 if we wait to 2040 or 2045 we're too late there's no, there's nothing to be done so so how and we we know <laughs> we we know only too well how slowly governments operate. So so you know again it's it it seems beholden to the corporates to to lead the way. And so how can you do this quickly? I think you've really hit on a key question there, Mark. Because when I look at you know I would say the last couple of years of momentum, you know we talk about unstoppable momentum uh, for the, for this transition to a low carbon economy. And then, you know, Zoe, what you were saying about the, you know, the trillions of dollars ready to be spent on a, on a green economy. We're in this phase right now where, you know, it's, it's requiring a whole systems change. So, you know, if you take shipping, for example, you know, how do you create a, a green supply chain around shipping? Well, that's not a five minute task. You know, that's kind of, you know, a, tr- a transition that may take five to 10 years. And so there's patience required, right, on the on the on the side of society. Um, and in the midst of that change and that transition, you know, it's not a it's not a leap that we're in. It's a transition. And one of the things I see, you're absolutely right, is that coming out of COP, there was a real sense of, 
you know, we can do this. We've got, you know, the, all the work around GFANS and all this kind of finance was mobilized and we made some really good statements, positive progression around fossil fuels. Maybe not everything that was uh, the, the climate activists were wanting, but certainly I would say significant progress. Zoe, I mean, obviously, with with everything we, we we've discussed so far, I think one of the key things I wanted to sort of look at is, you know, what is the banking world itself doing in terms of its own footprint? You know, clearly you're looking to provide um, and direct corporations and, and industry to to look at the way that they would manage their finance. Um, but but your own footprint, how's that going? How's that challenge being met? Well, Mark, it's obvious that we need to be leading by example, right, which is tricky, you know, in some cases, especially as it's we're such a big organization. And, and one of the ways to do that is really to take a holistic approach, which, which we did a couple of years ago, although we've been looking at the climate space for over 10 years now. But the first thing to do is really to get your governance in order of having board level oversight, the, you know, the highest level of authority of how to take decisions on climate issues. But then there's clearly the areas like risk assessment and integrating climate thinking in, into how you set your risk appetite if you're a bank or a financial institution. Um, equally, then your own uh, operational carbon footprint is important. But equally, going back to the point that I, I made earlier, this mobilizing capital agenda you can also have your own targets associated with that, right? So for us, we've set out a 750 billion to a trillion in facilitation and investment for sustainable finance over the next eight years. And it's a massive signal, right, that you're serious about the problem and you're serious at helping your clients on their own transition and climate narrative. Now, in terms of how well we're doing on that, so far we've provided 83 billion in the last year or so. So, you know, we're off to a start. That was in 2021. Our cumulative total is looking more at over a hundred uh, billion. Um, and so, you know, it's moving. It's, it's, it's a really good news thing to be getting on with. Separately, when we think about the emissions that are associated with us, most of that is in our financing. You know, it's the emissions that are associated with our balance sheet and how that's lent out to different organisations. And there's a massive effort across the industry as a whole through the, the GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance to Net Zero initiative that Martin mentioned earlier, you know, this is about saying, OK, we know in the industry that a lot of us are financing the same corporates. So does that mean that we're double counting emissions? How do we account for that? You know, what sort of scenario should we think about in terms of our future pathways of how we set our own targets against our balance sheet? So there's a lot of work around the operating profile of emissions, the emissions that are associated with our financing activities and the whole governance structure and, and how capital is being deployed. Deployed. It's really a holistic approach and it's really moved on leaps and bounds in the last 18 months or so. The SMEs of today potentially become the corporates of tomorrow. And if we don't help them set out on the right path, what chance have they got when, you know, in 20 years' time when they're very much centre of the industries that we're members of now? And you know. If we're looking at SMEs, and, and Martin, again, maybe can sort of go a little further, you know, how does an SME become relevant in the ESG world? And then perhaps, Zoe, if you can sort of 
also talk about after that maybe what you know what it what it means to remain relevant in an ESG world. The challenge for the SMEs, really, a lot of it depends really on whether they need access to public financing or not. Because what, what we see is as a big public company where, you know, we have shareholders and the stock market and, you know, there's, a, there's quite a lot of pressure, uh, good pressure, I would say, to, to change, right? There's that kind of um, drive, which is pushing the big corporates uh, who need access to public money. If you're an SME, you might be privately owned or, you know, uh, PE backed. I think the challenge then becomes um, much more about attract. Well, it's it's not and or because this is a challenge for big corporates as well. But I think it's mainly uh, attracting talent and showing the relevance of your organisation to the these kind of higher level uh, purpose driven activities that your next your your workforce wants to see you being part of and wants to see you making a tangible difference in the world. That's one half of it. The other half is then surviving in the midst of a pandemic and recession and bounce back. And then, you know, all these changes that SMEs have been going through, you know, furloughing staff, you know, coming back to work. Um, you know, I was speaking to quite a few recently where, you know, all the, the self-isolation in the hospitality sector has really, you know, crippled a number of businesses where, you know, the, the people are kind of here for a week and off for three weeks. And it's this practical, you know, impact at the grassroots level that when you're only, you know, a guy I was chatting to the other day, 75 people in their manufacturing facility, and, you know, they've, they've been really hampered in their ability to produce capacity because of these issues. So the wrestling with these kind of, you know, really basic getting people and uh, available and producing whilst at the same time thinking aspirationally about where they want to go. And in the middle of that is attracting the talent to come and be part of the solution. So I, I, I definitely think, you know, as a bigger corporate, the more help we can provide them, the better. And just to build from that, really, I mean, we're obviously headquartered in the UK, but we operate across around 60 countries or so. And, and clearly our clients are operating globally. Um, and we, we've managed to really create some innovative collaboration across our geographies and corporates. So, for instance, some of our, our large headquartered companies in the US um, well, indeed, Walmart, which obviously has a massive supply chain in Asia where we're present, we were able to create a collaboration where we could provide preferential terms to the supply chain within that construct because of the, the, the sustainability link metrics that Walmart wanted its suppliers to adhere to. And that's, of course, driven by shareholder pressure, the ESG investor that is asking its shareholding to look at the supply chain in more detail, and it's filtering down that way. But it means that we can be part of a, a, a more um, robust financing and sustainability structure. Within the region, of course, for Dubai Expo, we've done some work with Etihad Airlines in terms of sustainable aviation fuel as a market that can be grown. So there's plenty of ways in which a bank, believe it or not, can actually be part of the industrial transition as well. And what I've found really inspiring, actually, is well, I've been working on climate now for 16 or 17 years and in the financial markets for a long time. And often you become, can become on the receiving end of, of, of comments where you know people are, are kind of quite surprised that I work in climate in a bank. And yet there is so much that we can do, and it's so inspiring to see our colleagues 
get on board with this effort, right? They're devising products. They're thinking about how they can save plastic or save on um, energy efficiency and be more sustainable in their day-to-day roles. And that's brilliant to see, and it's it's necessary. Um, and it, it, it's just one of the reasons why being part of this global architecture is a, is a really nice place to, to work in terms of, of driving change. A question for you, Zoe, is how do you see us being able to reward companies that will invest in that resilience effectively is the bridge between where we are now, where we need to be? Well, they'll get rewarded themselves by the fact that they'll be operating in the future and it's a license to operate. But in addition to that, there are several ways in which companies will grow right and and have done throughout history and it's no different now it's just thinking about what the um, external factors are on on ability to operate now if the external factor is the supply chain is disrupted because of weather events or an inability to grow products if you're a consumer company for instance um then you, you to be resilient you, you simply can't avoid thinking about how your supply chain is going to change. If you're supplying into areas that are, are very carbon intensive, the political appetite to address these issues is increasing, and that can be a contributing factor as to how you'll be able to, to survive in the future. And I mean, there are tricky topics here, right? It's not going to be a straightforward downward emissions curve, although we would all like that. There are fossil fuels are part of the way that we live today, and there are substitutes for many activities, but still we're working through how to shift in others. And so the most important point is to signal direction of travel, to take these issues into account. And by doing that, you are therefore assessing resilience, assessing how well your business model is going to operate in the future. And that gives you time to influence the change and to think about how that is going to play out. So we see this in a lot of cases of, of, of people being thoughtful around a longer term time frame, which perhaps even two, three years ago, that longer term thinking wasn't really part of daily business as usual. Uh, but that, that will certainly help with the resilience discussion. Thank you. And, and Martin, I have no doubt that the wood are also considering as as much as they're considering the sustainable um, future and, and the low carbon future. You know, there is an element of resilience, both effectively internally and, and equally importantly, as you touched on just now, the, the supply chain. Perhaps you can uh, give us a little more around your policy and initiatives on that front. Yeah, I think the really critical uh, thing is sustainable and resilient organizations of the future. And I really liked what you said, Zoe, about, you know, they'll be rewarded by existing in the future. You know, I think, you know, we do need to recognize that society rewards what they value, right? That's essentially what what the finance industry does. You know, what we value as a society changes over time. And we talk about the social license to operate. And that has really been changed drastically over the last five years. And sometimes companies are a bit slow 
to respond to the changing values that society places on different aspects of its life. And for us, being resilient and sustainable is is really trying to be relevant to what people are trying, you know, what they want in their life, you know, and, and trying to understand how society is changing, how governments uh, are changing, and respond to that in a way that means that we're still relevant. Um, for us, I guess there's a couple of aspects. You know, part of it is looking into the future and thinking, you know, what might happen. We did some scenario planning where we looked 15 years into the future to try and think about uh, the world in 2035. And these questions, you know, I talked about strengthening the muscle of contemplation within wood. So, you know, it's, it was something uh, the first time we'd done it and it was quite new, but it really generated a lot of very, very good questions and debate right at the top of the company at the board level and exec leadership team. And as a strategist, it was uh, fantastic for me to kind of ask these questions and get people talking almost as it, 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 we got to the space where they were almost talking as private citizens rather than board members or, you know, and it's about it, it, what kind of world do you want to live in in the future? And we, we talked about that and I tried as best I could to be totally objective and dispassionate uh, with my scientific background. But as you discuss these things, you realize we all have an interest in what the future looks like, every single one of us. And so actually I realized over, eventually I was becoming more and more uh, convicted that the, the the world that we need that we want we have to put our full weight into making that world happen right we can't just sit back and say oh well in these various scenarios we're going to win in all these different scenarios and you know the greenhouse gases might double or whatever you know the, no one lives in a, a no one su um, succeeds in a four degree planet or a three and a half degree planet and I think that thinking you know, is is that future future thinking has been very very good. I think then there's the opposite side of that, or the the converse side, which is it's like present day stability and strength, right? And you know, as as Zoe was saying, you know, that kind of whole fossil fuels transition. Um, you know, we're seeing right now the the potential dangers of switching that off too quickly, um, and making quick decisions that are maybe politically um, favorable, but actually they're from an industry perspective, they're way, way too fast. And so I think, you know, what you were saying, Zoe, about this signaling the change, you know, that's what governments need to do. They need to signal the change, but give the businesses like us long enough lead time to adjust. And that's like 10 to 15 years. And so the challenge, I think, for us right now, Mark, is, you know, remaining relevant in our kind of core markets, but also these emerging markets, and then being kind of nimble enough to transition our portfolio from markets that are, you know, um, kind of finding this pressure to change, being the enabler of change and being financially rewarded uh, fairly through the midst of all of that. And sometimes those things are in balance and sometimes they're not quite in balance. And, uh, and I think the last thing I would leave with on this particular topic is, you know, you were asking earlier about being rewarded for, for this kind of greening of the, your company. I think there is, there is something missing um, right now. For, you, you almost get more rewarded if you exit an industry rather than stay in and try and help it. And I think that's something that as a, as a big corporate trying to fix some of these challenges, uh, it would be nice to be a bit more rewarded for doing that. 
that is one of the challenges that I see, particularly, you know, if, if you look at the, the, the Middle East, we're a deeply hydrocarbon driven economy. And most of our energy solutions are still that, although there has been significant investment in alternatives and, and that continues apace. But I think we still have to recognize that if we take the climatic extreme events, it feels like as an individual, they're happening more often. It feels like they're happening with greater impact. And yet, you know, we we don't necessarily look to help deal with the problem. If, you know, if we, if we shut something down, we think we've succeeded or well, we haven't, you know, it, it, it hasn't solved the problem. And, and, and hence why, you know, we're all now, you know, one of the, one of the issues could be, if you look at the UK, you know, we're, we're now struggling with significant increases in uh, the cost of energy. So, you know, what's the right, what's the right balance? Because somewhere along the line, there has to be a better balance. Zoe, just moving that on perhaps a little bit, we've talked very much about the sort of the need for sustainable finance and and how it influences behaviour both at corporate levels, government levels, and indeed further down the supply chain. I guess two questions that I have around this. How easy is it to distribute it? You know, you've talked about the trillions, the 23 trillion that's, you know, are now available. But, you know, how do we make make sure it goes to the right place? And then, and then, secondly, you know, um, you know, picking up a lot of what Martin said about the supply chain, you know, how do we capture everyone that that actually fundamentally needs it? In other podcasts, we talked about the funds that capture those that are in the sort of second stage of of um, innovation, if you like. But but somewhere within all of this, we've got to try and make sure we don't miss out on the <laughs> the gold the golden goose that's going to help us accelerate and transform our futures. And so it'd be interesting to see how I, you as the banking world, how you make sure there aren't great initiatives being missed because we just can't get the finance to them at the right time. I mean, sadly, right at this second, I think there probably are great initiatives being missed because of getting the finance to them. And, and that's that's changing very fast because there's an emphasis across the entire kind of capital stack of finance now that there hasn't been previously. So there's the, you know, there's the large institutional investor, there's the government thinking in, in sort of aid approach that's capturing climate. There's the now increasingly the VC and the private equity markets and the philanthropists that have all got this mindset around, yeah, I really want to do something to help solve the climate problem here. Um, the tricky point is matching ma- just exactly what you said. It's matching where the source of the projects that are looking for capital are versus the the mandate of the investors that can provide it. And I think that this is where there's still a need for kind of awareness building and you know talking about the topic. It's all well and good that the likes of HSBC has got this mandate from the top and it's all permeating across all of our regions and all of our businesses. That is amazing. It's fantastic. It's mobilizing people. But we are just one organization and there are other big ones like us that are 
you know, maybe doing something differently or, 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 or need to grow or whatever it might be. And so therefore, the fact that the finance agenda is so central now to the COP process and the thinking of how to mobilise capital through that, it means that there's becoming a greater linkage between the edgy ministries, the sort of planning ministries that are doing kind of national climate plans submitted to the UN that are addressing the problem and getting those plans translated into investment roadmaps so that investors can really see, okay, right, you know, transforming the energy system, that's huge. It's going to take a lot of investment. You know, maybe providing a fleet of electric buses is something that's not so costly and might be provided by a private company or maybe even a rich philanthropist. You never know who might be putting in towards it. But nonetheless, that kind of, that translation effect of the, Real economy shift and the investment that's going to deliver that is edging ever closer together. And I suspect that one of the outcomes of COP27 is, is going to be a closer alignment of that thinking, the real economy energy shift and the financial sector investment roadmap to be able to do that. And the future for clean tech and, and the various products and solutions, Martin? Clearly, in all of this, we know the transportation, the energy sector, the construction industry, we're all in the bad books, but we are starting to look at some really interesting innovations and changes, and it's worth the audience knowing about that. Yeah, I I think there's really probably two main categories of technologies that we need to think about. So the IEA came out last year, I think it was, saying that all all the technologies we need to hit our 2030 targets are already in existence. So that's really about deployment. It's about being cost competitive. It's about scale, pace of deployment and supply chain bottlenecks and things that could disrupt the flow of that technology around the world. So I think we've seen a really encouraging uptake in solar and wind, onshore and offshore, and a huge investment across the world in power generation, which has made it cost competitive. So I think the market is there for that. And and it's really down to the individual countries and organizations to figure out if that's the right solution for them in their their geography. So I think, yeah, there's more to come, but from a kind of a innovation and, and breakthrough perspective, you then move on to the next series of technologies, which is probably around hydrogen and carbon capture uh, utilization and storage. I think there's a lot of exciting work going on around hydrogen just now. And some of the projections are, are phenomenal in terms of the potential capacity for hydrogen to become effectively the clean molecule that we need uh, as, the, as an energy vector. Some of the e- economics might be a bit challenging, but I think the world has shown that it can reduce the costs of these new markets pretty quickly. And so I think there's a real hope that hydrogen can be a real enabler, not just to kind of be the energy vector, you know, the clean energy vector, but also in these kind of hard, what they call hard to abate sectors where it's going to require um, industrial repivoting or kind of adjusting these big facilities and trying to use hydrogen to kind of bring this kind of decarbonized solution to these big processes and industrial complexes. And I think from an energy perspective and energy and infrastructure, that's really the big challenge because I guess a lot of our focus goes on the things that are very visible, things like transportation, where you know there's a lot of discussion around electric vehicles and internal combustion engines and how quickly we can, you know, that market can be penetrated. 
you know, if the economics work and consumers are happy, I think that will change fairly quickly um, and the infrastructure has been built. But it's really the industrial ones that are the big challenge. And so I think hydrogen could be a really big enabler of that. And, and we're really investing in that as a market. We see a big potential blue and green hydrogen to really trying to, you know, provide these technical solutions that then can you know, enable you to capture carbon and store it in a way that means that you can still keep producing the, the you know the pet chems that are going to be needed. And I think this comes back to what you were saying, Mark, earlier around the Middle East. You know, you look at a lot of the work that we're trying to support. You know, to diversify in the region and using these hydrocarbons to be more sustainable and trying to burn less of them and uh, use them more in products and the kind of the whole refining investment that's been going on to produce more products. You know, the world will need plastics and a lot of that you know, comes from hydrocarbons. And I think you know, we really see that as a real opportunity for, for wood and for the Middle East because of the low lifting costs in the region and the massive distribution network. So yeah, lots of opportunities, but yeah, lots of, I think, uh, encouragement as well that you know, some of the solutions are already out there. It's just a case of scaling them up. I think it is interesting. I particularly, and picking up your point about the, the sort of the Middle East region and the initiatives that are coming out of there are, are truly commendable. But it's also, I think, a challenge when you also consider, and this is this has global implications, not just Middle East ones. When we're looking at city to city, with Dubai to Abu Dhabi, I think it's much simpler. The principle of changing petrol stations into hydrogen stations or electric vehicle charging stations works very well. What I've noticed as well is <laughs> having done the journey a couple of times, you do the Riyadh to Dubai journey, and it's a very different uh, uh, thing to, to undertake in a vehicle. The challenges, I think, remain that, that once one moves further away from the urbanized centers, you know, how do we also reach out and make the transitions that is going to encourage adoption but also in a way that brings benefit and doesn't penalize them because of where they live. That sort of urban versus rural question for me is a really interesting challenge for us as part of the overall energy and indeed finance aspect of, of getting us to, to net zero. If you've got less dense populations, you generally have less carbon demand, but you know, equally, when you want to create the level of flexibility that permeates being in a city, we, we also have the challenge of actually trying to find that balance that people are able to get from A to B. It's a really key question. Having experienced living in rural Scotland, uh, you know, we had those, just for people who don't live here, we had the storms come through uh, before Christmas that wiped out thousands of trees and destroyed electricity lines. And all of a sudden, thousands of homes were without power for weeks. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, this sustainability sometimes versus resilience, right? Because all of a sudden, what people realized was when you're without power in your home, you can't charge your electric car. And if you have a, a petrol or diesel car, you can drive to the hotel to at least get a, get a shower and have somewhere to sleep. So these very practical questions, you know, that come to people's minds when it's like, yes, aspirationally, we all want to have electric vehicles, but where we live, you know, and I think this goes to the heart of this podcast, you know, how, how will we live? How do we want to live? I think there's a real opportunity here as we come out of the pandemic in certain parts of the world. You can definitely see a revitalized rural economy 
when people are able to work essentially from anywhere, there is a, an opportunity for countries to look at their less densely populated areas as potential economic growth of the future because we're not so tied to location in a digital world. Thank you. Zoe, any thoughts on, on that before we move to a final question? Yeah, I mean, just to echo um, Martin's points really about the way that we'll live going forward and how, you know, and thinking about it from that perspective, there is still room for the city even in a post-COVID world where we've all moved outside of the city for a bit and, 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 and been a bit more versatile in what we're doing. But equally, the whole sort of context of COVID points to a shared response to solve the climate problem, right? Because without the broadband infrastructure, you're not going to be able to work in a rural location for very long because either you're going to get annoyed by slow broadband or your employer might not be too keen on the fact that all of a sudden you're you're not maybe as productive as you could be with fast broadband. And that, of course, needs a policy enabler as well as the finance enabler, as well as the demand for it. Essentially, those are the three nuggets that need to come together to solve the climate problem. Right, it's the finance, the policy, and the demand for change. I think just to to, to end today's podcast, I, I I kind of really have the the what so what next question for you both. What do you think success will look like for COP twenty seven and indeed for COP twenty eight in Abu Dhabi in the future? So. COP27 in Egypt, you know, I think it's a continuation of finance, center, center stage, mobilizing more into the solutions, getting that renewable electrification up as much as possible. So that's the key thing. Success also in Egypt is a bit more about raised ambition at the country level, getting emission reductions down faster. We really need that. Um, We need an acceleration and emphasis there. But then as we move forward to Abu Dhabi in 2023, that's a really big year because under the UN framework, it's the year of the global stock take. Now, what that means is when countries put forward plans ahead of Paris, there was an aim then to say, well, we've got to monitor these plans, right? How on track are they going to be in several years' time? And so Abu Dhabi will be overseeing that global stock take, which plays into how essentially how much the energy system is transitioning. So it's certainly going to be a very big year. Sincere thanks to Zoe Knight of HSBC and Martin Link of Wood PLC for joining me today for this fantastic podcast for Expo 2020. Your insights and your candidness has been really appreciated. It's been, a, it's been a super conversation. Thank you so much, both of you. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description. This has been a special podcast in the Business Plan for the Planet series. More episodes will follow shortly, so please do keep an eye out for those. For more information on the programme, visit business.hsbc.com forward slash sustainability. Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast, 
or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.